It has been said that there are three stories that explain our time. Just three. Three distinct ways to look at, to interpret, and to understand the state of the world today all around us. Some believe that there have only ever been three ways to perceive the world, three manners of relating to life itself. Whether you know them or not, whether you've heard of them by name, these three stories can be the difference between feeling so anxious that you can't seem to function, or so overwhelmed that you shut down and go numb and disengage and avoid reality altogether. These three stories may be the difference between staying engaged with the world and with life itself, living well, doing good, and contributing to others in ways that matter. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. Hello, one and all. Welcome, welcome, friends, strangers, first-time listeners, long-time listeners. Welcome. Thank you for being here. My name, as I said, is Dave Ursillo. I am the host of this podcast, the founder of The New Story Company. I am a longtime writer. I'm a multi-published, self-published author. I have been a life coach, a career coach for 10 plus years, as well as a writing coach and coach to first-time authors. And I am a future mental health counselor, currently in graduate school, about to enter into my clinical year uh, and uh, on my way to becoming a therapist. Human behavior, psychology, and how we engage with the world around us through our own experiences, how we engage with one another, how we learn ourselves and know ourselves. These are things that I've been passionate about since I was quite young. I found I, I was very interested in understanding what makes us tick as people, even when I was a kid. Uh, introverted, highly sensitive person, um, shy, complex inner world. That's kind of how I related to myself and still do. And so I oftentimes took a seat uh, in rooms with people as a listener and as an, uh, as an observer and as a writer and a communicator and a storyteller uh, and now a podcaster over the last year. This is our one-year anniversary. I love to continue to make connections with people, among people, in professional settings and in a personal context. It's something that I simply love to do. I don't know how to do anything else. And that's one of the many reasons why we're here at The New Story Is. So if this is your first time listening, welcome aboard. This is a solo pod episode, which means it's just going to be me and you talking. And I really wanted to do this to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the relaunch of the show. The show was originally called Written Spoken with Dave Ursillo. Written Spoken was originally about um, inviting authors on to share their words, the snippets of their own writing, in their own voices. So bringing the written word to life through the spoken word in the voices of the writers who wrote them. And um, that was kicked off really in 2019 and 2020 during the pandemic. We started to become an, uh, an interview-based show. And then I relaunched the show in 2022 as the new story is to explore concepts, ideas, stories, perceptions, and how they affect us and they affect our perception of the world. But in addition to celebrating the one-year anniversary of the relaunch of the show... It felt very important for me 
to break down with you one-on-one some of the really big concepts and I feel intimidating and anxiety-inducing ideas that were specifically embedded throughout our most recent interview with the great Margaret Wheatley or Meg Wheatley. For those who don't know, Margaret Wheatley is an esteemed author and thought leader. She's been working in uh, leadership and organizational development for 55 years. She's a nine-time author, a best-selling author, and has really been attributed with a lot of thought leadership around redeveloping, reconceptualizing key ideas to what it means to be a leader. And her work has radically evolved, I think she would say in her own words, to such an extent now where she is trying to to prepare leaders and activists today to deal with the consequences of global catastrophe, which which she refers to as something that is irreversible and now at a point of no return, mostly by way of climate crisis, but also what ensues by way of climate crisis. Immigration and refugee uh, crises uh, will continue to, to occur as climate crisis disproportionately affects food resources, water resources, economic um, opportunities for the world's Im- impoverished masses, uh, including those in developed industrialized nations, uh, among climate catastrophes, natural disasters, and so forth. We had a very big and very interesting, but also a very daunting conversation, Meg Wheatley and I, in our last interview. You can go back and listen to that interview now if you want to, but you don't have to to listen to this episode. What I want to do today is to break down bits of that last conversation with Meg Wheatley because we talked about such big, daunting, and heavy concepts, you know, uh, existential crisis stuff, like concepts about oblivion, the end of Western civilization as we know it, the potential or probable extinction of human beings as a species on planet Earth. That's some heavy shit, you know, that's heavy shit, and I don't want to pretend like it wasn't, and then snap back into interviews that may pale in comparison when we start talking about um, things that are really, really urgent and important and matter in everyday life, like gender equality or race issues um, and and trauma and things like that, my my concern would be going from such a big existential and philosophical conversation that did not, because of time constraints, leave us a whole, leave us Meg and I, let alone me, a whole lot of room to um, keep digging for more context and understanding on your behalf as a listener. I worry about the the repercussions of how that would feel for someone listening to a show that is more or less positive, optimistic, and constructive. We talk, we talk about and around um, and through different social, cultural, racial, identity-based issues and experiences, and then to talk about the, the end of times, so to speak, not in a religious context, but in a more ecological context. That's really heavy. That's really daunting. And I didn't want to just drop that in the podcast feed, pop that conversation into your ears, and then leave you with probably more questions than answers moving forward before the next series of interviews with amazing guests who are coming down the line. And I reiterate, are equally as important as the conversation we just had with Meg Wheatley. 
So what I'd like to do is to talk a little bit more with you today and to provide some added context of my own understanding of what Margaret Wheatley was bringing into our conversation that you might have either missed because I did extensive research uh, in anticipation of, of our interview and knew, as you could tell based on my introduction to the conversation, I knew that we were going to be talking about these very heavy things. I was aware that that Meg's work has gone in this direction. And um, I was more mentally and emotionally and in, in a way spiritually prepared to have a, that kind of a conversation. And given that, and while I'm not a, you know, a spokesperson for Margaret Wheatley or her work, she was such a gracious guest. Uh, I feel like we had a good rapport um, in, our, in our interview, but I don't speak for her. Um, I don't know her ideas better than she does. I don't want to talk about her in an abstract way in this conversation today. If I'm likely to get things wrong or misrepresent some of her ideas through the lens of my own experience and understanding, I wish that I could have talked with, with her um, a lot more than the 45 minutes or so that we had, but it took me about a year to, to try to convince her to have an interview with me to, to begin with. Um, and so 45 minutes, there was a lot of me listening and, and letting uh, a great thinker say her part and getting out of the way. And that's what you heard in that interview. And I hope it was worthwhile. Um, but Meg also cited some other teachers, authors, thought leaders, and ideas, like key concepts that are foundational for what she was imparting about um, relating to oblivion, relating to um, extinction, relating to collapse in ways that we didn't have time to really fully explore in our short time together. What I want to do here today, it feels important for me personally and professionally uh, as a coach, as a future mental health counselor, just as a human being, it would feel irresponsible for me to just continue on with our interviews um, without talking about some of the foundational ideas that are embedded within Margaret Wheatley's work and perspectives and philosophy, and how she's come to the conclusion that as a species on planet Earth, we have reached many points of no return or a point of no return in which we can't necessarily wave a magic wand or invent something that will fix all of the concurrent problems that are going on in our world today, social and political, economic, but also vastly ecological, environmental, and beyond. I want you to think about this episode as an opportunity for us to co-regulate any concerns or worries or ideas that were brought up in that last dialogue, and, and maybe even perhaps some of the questions that you raise as a listener Wondering, to what ends are we on this exploration together? Why are we in pursuit of, of the so-called new stories that may change our world for the better as we know it? What is the expectation uh, of what we, we can do as listeners, as explorers, me as a guide to you, as a, as a participant in this uh, project, and beyond? But I want you to think about this conversation together as a bit of an off-ramp, a bit of an exhale, a post-mortem, if you will, a chance to come down from the bigness of the exploration that we just had. So that's what we're going to do here today. Before we jump into the deep end, though, may I ask you for a favor? You're here. You're listening to this interview. I thank you so much for it. If you are listening, I presume that you like the work that I'm creating, you're engaged with it. You're somebody who cares about these ideas. You want to participate 
uh, in the so-called new story or new stories of our time. But the show is a passion project for me. Um, it is like marketing and advertising for myself as like a coach. Um, but the whole show, the production, the interviews, the scheduling, the coordinating, it all falls on me. I'm happy to do it. Uh, I do it willingly. And the show is free. But if you'd like to help me, which I ask you for now, if you'd like to help the show as a whole get more listeners so that I can keep doing this work for a willing audience and maybe monetize the show down the line because I still need to, as a full-time graduate student, as a full-time professional, as someone with needs in life, uh, financial and otherwise, um, grow the show to a respectable degree where we can actually make something of an impact uh, and share these ideas widely. If you'd like to express your thanks as a listener, all you really need to do right now is to leave a rating and a review of the show, especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave a star rating on Spotify. There's no ability to leave a review. Here's why. Ratings and reviews of podcasts are right now one of the only ways that podcasts have an opportunity to showcase that people are actually listening to their shows publicly. It's one of the only credibility markers that exists for podcasts online. We have about 15 or 16 ratings and a total of a 4.9 star rating overall, which is good. Surprisingly, while that number, 15 or 16 ratings, is really low, a majority, overwhelming majority of most podcasts have zero or one or a few ratings overall. It's not something that people really think to do as a listener to a podcast. And it may take you a while to get to the place where you feel comfortable leaving a rating or review for me and for the show, which I understand and respect and appreciate. But if you're feeling generous, if you like what we're doing here, you can go to the, the show page on your smartphone. You can search for my name or the name of the show. It should pop up. And if you scroll down on Apple Podcasts, you'll see an opportunity to leave a five-star rating and a review saying, you know, what you like about the show or why somebody should listen. If you go to the show page on Spotify, it's kind of hard to see. You'll see like a little star rating and a number somewhere uh, in the middle of the page that popped up when you find the show under the the logo art of the show, and you can tap on that star and leave a rating that way. If you can't find it, don't go crazy. It's not your fault. You can do a quick Google search for how to leave a podcast rating. You'll see plenty of videos showing you how. And thank you. It means a lot, and uh, I appreciate you um, helping the show in that way. Okay, on with the show. So in the opening, the cold opening of this episode, I shared the idea of what is called the three stories of our time. This terminology, three stories of our time, the ideas behind them are based on the work of Joanna Macy. And if you listened closely to Margaret Wheatley's interview, she cited Joanna Macy a couple of times. And um, this, this idea, the three stories of our time, comes from Joanna Macy. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Joanna Macy is an environmental activist. She's a 12-time author. She's a scholar of Buddhism, a scholar of general systems theory, as well as a scholar of something called deep ecology. She's 93 years old. She just completed heavily revising one of her most recent books called Active Hope, which was published in 2012 and revised and re-released in 2022. And in Active Hope, Joanna Macy offers this idea of the three stories of our time alongside a very uh, poignant 
and powerful manifesto about how to engage with work in the world that can be a part of positive and constructive change despite, because of, and in relationship to the vast, complex, difficult, and daunting experiences that befall us, that have always befalled us as human beings in the world, in the course of human history, but are particularly daunting here and now. The reason I want to introduce you to the three stories of our time from Joanna Macy is because I sensed and heard in Margaret Wheatley's offerings to us some, what I perceive to be some philosophical basis in Joanna Macy's work, or I should say from Joanna Macy's work. I heard Margaret Wheatley speaking from that foundation And I want to offer these thoughts to you because I think it will place into context the conversation that Margaret Wheatley and I had together about the state of things and what is the nature of change today. What can we do if collapse is coming, whether that's in our lifetimes or beyond us? And I want to also place the work of this show in the context of these so-called three stories of our time. The three stories of our time are basically perceptions of how we may look at the world around us, understand the state of the world, understand how humanity at large engages with the state of things, how we see, sense, and perceive the direction, if you will, of the world going. The three stories are, one, business as usual, two, the Great Unraveling, and three, The Great Turning, okay? Business as usual is the first story. The Great Unraveling is the second story, and The Great Turning is the third story. Let's start by exploring what business as usual is. Business as usual represents a story of our modern-day industrial growth society, which is based on a European colonial empire model that over the last, call it 500 years, has been the dominating and and dominant enforcing mechanism of what Joanna Macy calls predatory capitalism, an imperialist economic system, which upon which is also the, the corporate financial and military industrial complex that Ms. Macy continues to say perpetuates patriarchy and white supremacy for the profit and the power of a few. The story of business as usual really dictates how we perceive the world to be today and in many ways represents what we as a society have been told and oftentimes want to believe represents an evolution to human civilization and us having here in a capitalist, democratic, uh, consumer-based society would like to think was the end goal all along. One point along 
a journey, a trajectory throughout history where human beings were making steady progress in a forward direction to here. Joanna Macy says that business as usual is the story of not only how we got here, but what will keep happening to us and to our world if nothing changes. Predatory capitalism, imperialist-based economics, military-industrial complex, perpetuation of patriarchy and with it misogyny and sexism and repression of those who identify as women or those who are simply not uh, identifying as men, white supremacy, increasing profits and power for the few at the expense of the many. Business as usual. When we talk about the the story of business as usual, we're talking about greed, exploitation, we're talking about blissful ignorance, and with it, a kind of selfish avoidance of reality, a really inhumane, non-empathetic way of treating earth and nature, of uh, treating other people, and kind of just wanting to keep doing things the way that we think they've always been done, enriching ourselves at the cost of the many. Uh, presuming that technology can and will fix any problem, like a, like that magic wand I mentioned earlier, a wishful thinking that we can invent our way out of any problem that we create. And there's also this assumption that things will be just fine. But that's just one story. That's one way of seeing things. Business as usual. That's the first story. The second story is called The Great Unraveling. The great unraveling is what we all, if you're listening here, tend to see and sense and feel and fret about when we turn on the news, when we talk with one another at the coffee shop or the yoga studio about the state of things, when we clamor for change, when we demand things to get better, when we get pissed off, when we try to vote out one person for another we think is going to suddenly fix everything for us, we're operating under the fear and the recognition of what we could call a great unraveling. Joanna Macy calls The Great Unraveling uh, a story that refers to the living systems of Earth that have been unraveling for generations. Everything from colonial expansion and rule that has exploited, dominated, and committed genocide against the likes of indigenous, brown, black, and impoverished communities to burden our world to such an extent where ecologically, environmentally, and uh, culturally, socially, there have been which she calls direct and lethal impacts on the health of many people. And now today, of course, it's the climate itself that that is propelling this feeling and, and recognition of a worldwide unraveling and something that's ongoing called the sixth great extinction of species, which is underway. We see almost daily now um, extreme weather events that are amplified by global warming um, that disproportionately, as I said, affect Uh, Millions of people, especially those for whom resources are already scarce or have been made scarce um, as a result of exploitative and colonial capitalism. Ecosystems are being destroyed and the problems are kind of compounding on themselves environmentally and ecologically and, and spiraling out of control. That's the great unraveling. Uh, We could see, you know, um, incarceration rates worldwide. We could see refugee and immigrant crises. We could see um, the rise of authoritarians in otherwise democratic societies, famine and drought, 
um, refugee camps, systemic racism, longstanding cultural and religious uh, conflicts flaring up, seeming to get worse, not better, an increasing strain on the toll of human suffering. Now, Macy, among others, something that I, I myself, not to put myself in the same conversation as someone like Joanna Macy, but felt years ago that the extent to which we are witnessing or feeling like we're witnessing this great unraveling happening faster and more dramatically than ever seems worse than ever today because of the rate of, of change and technology, communications technology, which kind of keeps us constantly attuned and aware of every problem that happens the world over 24 7, 365. But Joanna Macy says that yes, it's more apparent than ever today, but this unraveling has been happening for generations. And in many ways, dear listener, this is the story that I heard Margaret Wheatley describing to us, not in these exact same words, but in quite similar sentiments. Meg shared an acknowledgement of what could be called the story of the great unraveling. An acceptance that things are globally very bad, and in many ways, a lot of the things that we just discussed are in ways irreversible. That can be hard to acknowledge, right? That can be a hard and bitter pill to swallow. To accept that things may be, or in fact are, as bad as they seem. To acknowledge that we cannot collectively or individually fix them all. And maybe that we can't fix any of it. There's a real grimness and darkness that almost approaches the line of cynicism or nihilism to make this admission. But it's not necessarily cynical or nihilistic to acknowledge that things are bad and that we can't just idea our way out of them or invent our way into solutions or be a singular force as an individual person among 8 billion who could, as if by will, by sheer will of force, hope our way into fixing not just one of these problems, but all of them. Because in so many ways, they're all connected. I think we ought to bring a solemn respect to these acknowledgments. I think it's important to acknowledge that it, it realistically, like, yeah, it could be too late. And yet, as Margaret Wheatley herself told us, we may still do something. We may still try not to fix it all on our own, not to fix it all at once, not to go, not to magically repair everything and time travel back 500 years to the state of the world. Then it's, there's no magical thinking here. It's not even, um, a faith-based kind of like reclamation of everything that we, that we really want to, um, imply as possible or even realistic. There's a, a holding of a possibility that we might not be able to do anything and a humility that comes with that, and yet a recognition of choice that we each possess to do something. 
that we may, because of or in spite of, or both because of and in spite of the state of things, still live well, do our healing work, create, offer, care, to do our part in whatever ways we may be able and that we choose to be able. Again, the goal isn't to single-handedly and all on our own save Earth and all of humanity like a superhero. It is to acknowledge truths that may be beyond our power and control because, let's face it, so much of life is and always has been and always will be. And yet, to remember that just because we don't possess all of the power in the world to change everything all at once for everyone, that we still retain choice and ability, creativity, caring, humility, love, forgiveness, enough to still function and to live well and to be our most well and whole while we're here. Here's a really interesting thought. When we talk about the state of the world, we're talking about a macrocosm. We're talking about, you know, everything all at once. And it's really intimidating because we're talking about existential oblivion. You know, the downfall of society, of civilization itself. And how we feel about that, how we react to the idea of, like, what we all fear, which is uh, just things continuing to get worse. How we react when we think about the end, I imagine for you, like it is for me, how we react to that, uh, that existential fear, is not very different from another form of existential fear that we all have to face in life and will face as mortal human beings, which is our own deaths, our finiteness, our mortality. Talking about mass extinctions, the downfall of civilization, climate catastrophe, it's awful, it's terrifying, it sucks, we'd rather not, right? Because, because we throw up our hands and say, well, well, I can't possibly fix all those things, so what do I do about it? But probably just as well, we'd probably not talk about our own aging, our loss of abilities, things that we took for granted when we were younger, our real human frailty, The fact that being alive means being in relationship to death and loss and grief and loneliness always. Recognizing that we're not as special as we thought we were when we were kids. This hope that so many people, so many of us all carry that maybe I'll be the one who's different than all the rest. That backwards kind of expression of finding our own identity and valuing ourselves, which we think when we're young, we have to do, we, we only are able to do in expressing our specialness out loud and among others through fame and acclaim and being beloved and cherished by everyone. We might even have that idle thought that we have as kids. Maybe we could outlive death. Maybe we can outlive loss. Maybe we can outlive sadness. Maybe we can figure out everything. Maybe we can fix the world as we know it. Death and loss and grief are very much uh, 
they're not just a part of what it means to be alive. They are what it means to be alive. And as human beings, when we face our own mortality, we may react in multitudes of ways, but perhaps Joanna Macy would say that there are three ways. Maybe she would say that there are three stories or manners of engaging with our own mortality. The first story, business as usual, a sort of avoidance of reality and trying to do what we've always done despite our aging, despite loss of abilities or changing abilities, despite loss itself and grief and mourning, despite feeling like culture or society is changing beyond our our ability to really understand or relate to it, business as usual, just like the story of how we perceive the world. The second story, the great unraveling, maybe approaching, thinking about grappling with our death and mortality with terror and anxiety, so great that we either shut down and go numb or get so overwhelmed and worked up that we're totally overcome with stress and can't function or be present or do anything productive or graceful or worthwhile. But there's also a third story. There's a third story in how we can relate to the world. There's a third story of how we can interpret the changing of things. And I would suggest that there's a third story of how we relate to our own mortality and finiteness as living creatures. What Joanna Macy calls that story is the great turning. The great turning is engaging in a middle way. It's a it's a almost like a secure attachment approach to taking proactive action in one's life in ways that do not abide by the dogma and the ignorance of business as usual, that first story, and is not overwhelmed and constantly burdened with anxiety and stress and disillusionment and cynicism as through only ever paying attention to the ways things are falling apart, the great unraveling. In our own lives, facing our own mortality and eventual deaths, we might say that the great turning is a way of honoring and acknowledging limits, finiteness, appreciating the fact that to be alive at all is to be in relationship to death and grief and mourning and loss and sadness, and engaging proactively in a way that strives to honor a sense of legacy of what we leave behind, if invisibly, for having been here at all. Legacy can be talked about, especially in creative circles, entrepreneurial circles as the imp- like the great your egotistical greatness it can be a, a, a tremendous outlet or expression of arrogance and like attempting to live forever despite your mar- mortality um Irving Yalom a really renowned um psychiatrist and and philosopher and theorist about human development and psychology uh, espouses this belief he believes that all human suffering really derives from existential woe, 
the, the existential dilemmas we will all face about always being alone, no matter how close we feel or how, how in love we feel or how peopled our lives are. Um, we'll always feel some sort of existential aloneness being, you know, um, being single persons. The existential dread and doubt about our mortality in life and so forth. And what Irving Yalom says, Dr. Yalom uh, espouses in his books and in his teachings that there are a lot of ways that people try to cope with the existential um, dread of not mattering, essentially, right? Like being one of 8 billion people, and if, if, if we die today, the world will keep going on, right? And reckoning with that uh, as a truth. And legacy kind of comes up. We try to pass on our legacy through children, our, our, our genomes, our stories, our memories, in a way that Dr. Yalom believes um, this isn't the only reason why people have children, but he, he does believe that some part of us feels compelled to have children to pass on these things so we can feel like even if we die, part of us lives on, right? And there could be a lot of solace in that. Um, writing a book, as, as I, have, I have done and attempted to do and self-published, um, creative work can feel like legacy. Some part of you lives on. That's not the, the, the arrogance or egotism side, the like slightly selfish side of like passing on yourself and hoping to live forever. It's not what I'm talking about when I say legacy. When I say legacy in the sense of the great turning, it means to be a participant in this constant evolution, the life cycles and systems that our, that our planet participates in and that, so far as we can tell, the universe participates in. And to do so with our own lives is what Margaret Wheatley suggested to us and offered to us and affirmed to us as essential. And it was subtle, and you might have missed it when processing the bigness and the terror and the fear and the anxiety of, you know, this great thought leader saying uh, and seeming to be resigned to and accepting of the so-called great unraveling, that solemn recognition that things are really bad and in many ways irreversible and that we ourselves cannot do anything about it all on our own. But to be a participant in knowing that there is still something to be done, that there still are things to do, more ways to be, to exist, to live, than to keep doing what we've always known with blissful ignorance and avoidance of reality, like business as usual, or being so overwhelmed and terrified that we cannot function in the face of natural existential dread that we feel like we can't look away from the great unraveling. Joanna Macy says the story of the great turning involves the emergence of what she calls new and creative human responses, as well as a reawakening of sustainable indigenous traditions. She goes on to say the, the importance of honoring sustainable indigenous traditions, as she calls them, is to acknowledge the wisdom that is found in what I would call just like a global cultures and global traditions that are, let's articulate it, non-white, non-European, non-colonial, not stemming from Christian origin, capitalist, patriarchal, white supremacist schools of thought that have wrought havoc the world over for the last, say, 500 years. Outside of the bigness of those systems and schools, we find a natural value, and this is what I think Joanna Macy is saying, and this is why um, someone like Margaret Wheatley also brings in and tries to bridge and teach and offer 
um, teachings and ideas from Buddhism and in, in other what she and Joanna Macy would call indigenous teachings that I would probably personally call just like global cultures that are exist outside of like white Europeanness because they are they have been historically traditionally closely linked to the land to life cycles in a natural honoring a working with life cycles a participation an honoring of beauty uh, but a respect for death and suffering this is why representation matters this is why as a as a white person as a white male as a cisgender male as a heterosexual male um and on and on it goes of european descent and so forth i try to call call out my um my identities in these podcasts because this is an audio format that's why there's such importance in in and uh imperative for more voices perspectives historical traditions cultural traditions uh individual perspectives um rooting from non dominant uh, white capitalist European perspectives. This is why we need to make more room at the table for having other conversations, representation, diversity, equity, inclusivity, belonging, day-to-day, every conversation, throughout industry, business, everyday life, art, music, and so forth. We need to, we, meaning me as a representing white voices, I think we need to be constantly making more room for other ways of being and doing because we know, and I'll say it again, the white European colonial Christian origin capitalist patriarchal white supremacist way of being for 500 years that has brought us to the point where we are. This is why there is urgency to look outside of that dominant and dominating and domineering supremacist way of looking at the world and earth and natural resources and one's own self-anointed greatness and destiny to take whatever and to do whatever and to think that it'll all be fine it's not working business as usual has got to change and it will cause our undoing and yet when you say that and when you practice that you will encounter backlash. This is a backlash that people of color, people from marginalized identities, people from historically underrepresented or overlooked identities and experiences know all too well. But we see in the news, it's a small number of people, but we see people who are white, of European ancestry, who are colonialist in in nature or practice, oftentimes who are Christian, Uh, who are capitalists, who are patriarchal, and who either espouse or abide by white supremacist values and beliefs, fight against the change. They lash out against it. They call it woke. They are defensive. They can be violent. They would rather maintain business as usual and see the destruction of everything. They'd rather lash out, or murder, or vote for a racist, for president, or erode their own health, well-being, economic self-interests, if it means maintaining a false belief 
a hollow belief, a fragile belief, in business as usual, that first story. They refuse to see or acknowledge the great unraveling and to legitimize those who are afraid and and just don't know any different, perhaps. They see in the great unraveling, all they see is dread and no possibility of anything getting better. So we are called to participate in the great turning. To find a middle way that defies business as usual, but does not succumb to the great unraveling. In Joanna Macy's words, the great turning is a story from those who see the great unraveling, but don't want it, the unraveling, the undoing, the collapse, to have the last word. Joanna Macy continues, This is the story of the transition from the industrial growth society to a life-sustaining society. Those are her words. A life-sustaining society. She says, Attitudes shift from exploitation to respect, from extraction to regeneration, from competition to cooperation. She goes on, More and more people come to see how interwoven we, we are as peoples, and recognize that solidarity with one another is a way through constant crisis. We join together to act for the sake of life on earth. Unquote. What Joanna Macy says is that there are different areas or dimensions that she calls mutually reinforcing. So different aspects to the great turning that we can be participants in in our everyday lives. The first one, is taking actions to resist or slow down the damage done to Earth and all of its beings. It's the everyday stuff. The second dimension is participating in analysis and transformation of socioeconomic foundations of our common life. So in other words, calling attention to and participating in change efforts, the systems and uh, the you know, and the politics really that have a direct impact on people's lives day to day. And the third, Joanna Macy calls attention to another mutually reinforcing dimension or another element of the great turning. She says it's perceptive, it's cognitive, and it's moral, and it means shifting worldviews to personally and collectively take responsibility for human life and affirm that humans do have a responsibility to all of life, all of life's richness, its diversity, and what we can pass on legacy-wise to future generations. Acknowledging legacy as the lineage we pass on, the world we continue to pass on as we have inherited to future generations, to be, as as I have heard and really revere the saying from especially my friends of color and from uh, Native American, Indian populations, and so forth, being a good ancestor, acting in ways that acknowledge that what we do does have impact on the future in the present. Meg Wheatley impressed this upon us when talking about her warriors for the human spirit. 
This is what she's imploring us to do. Stop trying to be a global savior. Be human in your own backyard, with your neighbors, in your communities, engage in local politics, doing the little things that you can and participate in this great turning. There are three stories, three distinct ways to look at or interpret or understand the state of the world today all around us and how they mirror in many ways stories of our own lives. Do we just keep carrying on with what we have known? Do we look into the face of all that we've lost? Do we try to find a middle way? A different way? A way that acknowledges what is, challenges the norm, and works in ways that we find ourselves are accessible, that feel valuable, that feel self-honoring, that help us to live and to be healthy and to be whole and to be content and to become a proud ancestor to future generations. This is my, my understanding of the moment, of the three stories of our time through the work of Joanna Macy, which I think mirrors and evokes a lot of the conversation that was had with Margaret Wheatley in our last interview. I hope this has been helpful, and I hope you can also see that future conversations on this podcast will dissect, criticize, and call attention to a lot of different stories or experiences within that camp of business as usual. We'll keep critiquing it, we'll keep breaking it down, we'll keep calling attention to it. The Great Unraveling, we also want to call attention to that, but also navigate the, the dread, the doubt, and the difficulties around seeing aspects of our world that are falling apart without being overwhelmed by them, while still acknowledging them as real and true. And then participating in whatever ways you, know, you and I and our guests think um, is their expression, perhaps, of participating in the great turning. We'll continue to have on different experts, guests, storytellers, academics, entertainers, writers, authors, and beyond. Not who are coming on to this show to try to tell you or convince you that they have the answer, the solution, to fix everything. We're past that. It's a tired story. It's a boring story. It's a self-coddling kind of infantilizing story. I'm done with those stories. We will try to find ways to participate and to encourage you in the ways that I'm sure you already are participating in The Great Turning to uh, do what we can, to be who we are, to give how we're able. And I don't know about you, dear listener, but that to me is uh, a story I think that is worth telling. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Drop me a line, rate, review, leave a comment. We'll be back soon with more conversations. Until next time, story on.